I have a cheat sheet here, so I will read to you what um, has been provided. Robert Hatfield is our speaker this hour, uh, and he has preached the, the gospel of Christ for 20 years now. Uh, interesting. I have been with the school for 20 years, so we were about the same. Um, he has served uh, the church in the local capacity in Tennessee and South Carolina, uh, and presently serves as the pulpit minister for the Henderson Church of Christ in Henderson, Tennessee, where Freed Hardman finds its home. He and his wife, Emily, uh, met at Freed Hardeman and graduated from there in 2010. They were married in 2011, and they have two children, Anna and Owen. Uh, Robert, uh, my connection with Robert is he's the founder and director of the Light Network, uh, and it's a podcast network that provides a number of shows for the Brotherhood, and I have had the pleasure of being on a couple of those shows. We share a bent for technology, and uh, but as tech guys, we don't like to necessarily be known as tech guys. Uh, the, the most important thing is that he preaches the gospel of God, and that that's that's what we are all here striving to do. And uh, Robert does a tremendous job with that. I've told him, and I've joked with him. First of all, his head is narrower than I've ever seen it because I'm used to him having headphones on because I'm used to <laughs> seeing him through my camera. Second of all, he's a lot taller than I ever expected because I always see him sitting down with his headphones on. But I had the pleasure of sitting in his session last hour. He's an excellent preacher of the gospel, and we're going to be blessed. So, brother, come preach the word to us. Preach the word. Yeah, when you get to be known as a tech guy, you get all the questions like, will you fix my printer? <laughs> you know, and things like that. I hate printers. <laughs> but anyway, it is such an honor to be with you all today. First uh, Kings 18, please. Would you open to First Kings 18 as we discuss together case studies in distress, Elijah in the valley. Have you observed, like I have, that the lows of life often follow the highs of life. In preaching, that looks like Monday. <laughs> I call that Monday. And we call them the Monday blues for a reason. Uh, you know, I'm sort of I'm sort of playing the tape all day on Monday. In my mind, I'm reviewing, you know, did I did I say it just right? Did I unintentionally communicate something that I didn't mean to? Uh, did I say it so that the sister who's a little sensitive still heard it without turning me off? Um, you know, I'm just I'm constantly thinking over those things. And more often than I care to admit, I just feel as though I was lacking. And I guess some of that has to do with a treasure in earth and vessel kind of thing, right? I mean, who am I that I get to proclaim the uh, riches of Christ? Mondays are my lows that often follow the highs. And the most encourage the more encouraging the Sunday is the lower the Monday seems to be. Maybe you have something, if you're not a preacher, that sort of correlates to that. For Elijah, he's coming off of Mount Carmel, 1 Kings 18, when God's power has defeated the prophets of Baal and unequivocally demonstrated that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the one true God. And we find Elijah after that in 1 Kings 19 running for his life, literally running for his life, because Jezebel has vowed, listen, if the gods 
that she served. Don't kill me first, then I'm going to kill you. And you know what? Elijah recognizes Jezebel is just crazy enough. She means that. I mean, she literally is going to come after me. Elijah turns to God in 1 Kings 19 and he says, God, if you don't take my life, then Jezebel will. You might as well go ahead and kill me right now. You want to talk about a low following such a high? Let's get our minds around the high that was the victory of God in 1 Kings chapter 18. You don't need me to tell you about King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. Uh, This is a particularly low time in Israel's history. In the first part of 1 Kings 18, going down through really verse 16, We find that they're in the middle of this famine, um, and God says to Elijah in 1 Kings 18.1, Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. And so here goes Elijah. He's going to make his way there. In the meantime, we have this fellow by the name of Obadiah that is sort of working with King Ahab. And, uh, you know, Ahab doesn't know it, but Elijah has helped to save some of the prophets in the past. Uh, And now, uh, did I say Elijah? I meant Obadiah. But Obadiah has helped to save some of these prophets in the past. Well, Obadiah is supposed to go one direction looking for water. Maybe they can save some of the cattle and the herds. Uh, Ahab is going to go the other direction. And as it happens, Obadiah runs into Elijah. Elijah says, go back, Obadiah, and tell Ahab I'm here and to meet me here. And Obadiah says, "Uh uh-uh, time out. Uh, Do you know what he's going to do to me when he finds out that I've seen you? This fellow's been looking for you high and low. And when he finds out that I've seen you and then I bring you to this, I bring Ahab to this place where you've told you're going to meet up, for all I know, the Lord's going to tell you to go somewhere else. And when we come here and you're not here, Ahab's going to kill me because I told him that I'd seen you. Elijah says, hey, listen, I promise. This is the word of the Lord. I will be here. God wants me to meet up with Ahab. Obadiah orchestrates the meeting between Ahab and Elijah. In verse 17 of 1 Kings 18, when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, this is Elijah, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you've abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal. This was the main Canaanite god, little g god. And the 400 prophets of Asherah. This was a fertility goddess who eat at Jezebel's table. All right, so Elijah is orchestrating this meeting between hundreds of these prophets. This is going to be the moment. This is the moment when God demonstrates Himself to be the one true God. At least the moment in this period of this Old Testament history. Ahab sees to it that all these people are brought together. And when they get there at Mount Carmel, verse 21, Elijah says, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal, then follow Him. And the people didn't answer. And Elijah, with an air of confidence about him, says in 22, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Elijah says, I'm fine to stand here on behalf of God alone. And then he gives 
you know, the, the uh, rules of what is about to go down. All right, let's get some bulls here. Let's prepare some altars. Let's get everything ready for sacrifice except for the fire. And then you call on your God. I'm going to call on the one true God. We're going to see who gives the fire first. The prophets of Baal start. And you know, when you read this, it's really quite sad. They call on Baal, even mutilating themselves to try and garner the attention of a God who does not exist. And finally, Elijah gathers all the people together. He significantly, verse 31, takes 12 stones, uh, verse 30 rather, and repairs the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. That's an indicator of the times, right? He takes these stones, he repairs this altar, the bull is prepared, it's set on the altar, and then Elijah says, okay, I want you to bring in buckets of water. We're going to have a series of buckets of water that are poured on top of this altar of sacrifice to the point that even the trench that's dug around the bottom of the altar is filled with water. There's going to be no question when this miracle happens that this is a miracle of God. Unequivocally, as I said, demonstrating that God is the one true God, the great I Am. Of course, God sends the fire down. It's interesting that the text says that the fire licked up the water that was all around. Once and for all, it was demonstrated. God is God. And of course, there is punishment that is doled out for those who would represent the false gods. Ahab, verse 1 of chapter 19, told Jezebel everything Elijah had done how he killed all the prophets with the sword. And Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me. Notice this is an oath she's making. So may the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them, referring to the prophets of Baal, by this time tomorrow. Okay, Elijah, I'm out for your head. The clock is ticking. You've got 24 hours. And he was, verse 3, afraid. What do we do when our hearts are broken? When our souls are crushed? When we just feel empty? Of course, everybody gets discouraged. This is a case study in distress. Everybody gets discouraged, and that's okay. It's not so much that you get discouraged, but what you do when you are discouraged. Let's analyze now as we come to chapter 19 what Elijah does and then what God does. God has shown Himself in a very public way to be the one true God. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is God. But now... How will God demonstrate this reality in a personal way to Elijah? How will He prove it in Elijah's heart? Let's begin by noticing that distress can be dangerous. As we said, it's not a sin, I don't suppose, to be discouraged. It's just, what do I do with it? 
How am I going to respond to it? And Elijah shows us some things that we need to be on guard about with reference to discouragement. Number one, I need to realize that discouragement can cause me to isolate. It can cause me to want to be alone. Verse 3 says that he, Elijah, was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life. And he came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. And then verse 4 says, He went himself a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. I don't want to read too much into Elijah leaving his servant and then going another day's journey. However, as I compare that with the rest of this context and what Elijah will say to God on not one but two occasions in this text, I think Elijah's trying to be alone. In fact, I think Elijah's ready to quit ministry. I think Elijah's saying, all right, I don't really need you anymore. I'm just going to leave you here. He wants to be alone, and I think that perhaps he's given up. Sometimes we need to be alone. We live in a culture that maybe doesn't prize solitude the way that we should. We are always connected and we talk like like that's a good thing. Sometimes it's good to turn the phone on airplane mode even when you're not on an airplane. Right? <laughs> Sometimes it's helpful to disconnect. I find that on some Mondays I need to disconnect a little bit. The church knows I'm not going to be in my study on Mondays. If they need me, they know how to get in touch with me. Sometimes I'll just disconnect. And sometimes I'll use that time to reconnect with my family, of all things, which is a great thing to do as well. It's not bad to want to be alone. But isolation, I think we understand, is a different thing. Distancing myself from people at times because I don't want to hear their words of counsel. I don't want them to try and cheer me up. I just kind of want to throw a party, a pity party. (laughs) I want to be here alone for a little while and dig in this and feel this as long as I can. Discouragement can do that to me. And that's something I need to be aware of. It's dangerous. Number two, discouragement can cause us to quit. He himself, picking back up at verse 4, went a day's journey into the wilderness, and he came and sat down under a broom tree. The old translation said under the juniper tree. And as such, when we were starting the Light Network 10 years ago, we created a podcast called Under the Juniper Tree, which talks about a biblical perspective on mental health and just making sure that we take care of ourselves mentally. I've read that these broom trees can grow up to about 12 feet. Now, there are lots of these in Palestine. But look at what happened next. Sitting there under that tree, he asked that he might die. And notice of whom he's asking this. He said, It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I'm no better than my father's. And then he lay down and went to sleep. Isn't it interesting that he's running for his life, verse 3, and yet when we come down to verse 4, he says, just take my life. He doesn't want Jezebel to kill him, but he wants to die. It's almost as though he doesn't want to go through the violence. He doesn't want her to catch him, but he almost just wants to sleep and not wake up. He just doesn't want to be in this anymore. By the way, it's not up to us to ask for death. 
The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord's most transformative work is often done when we're at our worst. Paul found that out, right? With the thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And after he's beseeched the Lord three times to take it away, the response of the Lord is, My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Paul says, so I've shifted my perspective. I glory in the weaknesses. Because those are the moments when the power of Christ is best on display in my life. Discouragement can cause us to quit. There are a lot of things, external or internal, that might convince me that I need to quit. Sometimes we use other people as scapegoats. You know, well, they did this, and therefore I'm not going to do that anymore. It's not wrong to be discouraged. But if I'm thinking about giving up, throwing it in, that's dangerous. That's something I need to be aware of. And then third, as we think about the dangers of discouragement or distress, discouragement can cause us to think irrationally. Oh Lord, take away my life. I am no better than my father's. Elijah, what about all that stuff back in chapter 18? <laughs> is this the same guy? Isn't it interesting that, that this one guy can be on Mount Carmel and he can say, I alone am left. But come to chapter 19 and look at verse 9. Coming to a cave, Elijah lodged in it, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, of, the, Lord the, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel, forsaken your covenant, apostasy, thrown down your altars, idolatry, killed your prophets with the sword, martyrdom. And look at this, I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. There's a different air about it, right? In chapter 19 than in chapter 18. Mm-hmm. We don't see this confident Elijah anymore. Instead, we see a complaining Elijah. He's saying, I'm the only one left. And this seems to be a rehearsed speech to God. God asks the question, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah gives the answer. And later, down in verse 13, when God asks the same question, Elijah gives the same answer, including verse 14, saying, I, even I only am left. Isn't it interesting that in our English translations it is word for word exact going back to chapter 18 and then here in 19 verse 10 and then in 19 verse 14 and we can see how the same individual can span such a spectrum in terms of being encouraged and spiritually powerful so to speak connected to the power of God on one side and then just a few days later so very low. Mm-hmm. But hey, listen, I can relate to that. Can you? Mm-hmm. I know what that feels like. I hate it when my wife throws my sermons back at me. <laughs> Sometimes she'll say, she'll say it like this. You know, I recently heard a sermon about that. And I'm like, come on, why you got to do that? <clears throat> Some days... I feel pretty strong. Sometimes the next day, I feel pretty weak. 
and I begin to focus only on the negatives Mm -hmm. rather than on the promises that I even know are true. The present realities, not just the the hope that is to come, but the current blessings that are mine. Backing all the way up to verses 4 and 5 once again, I'm no better than my fathers, he says. You know what? The same end of those prophets who have preceded me is also my destiny. It's unavoidable. So God, you might as well go ahead and kill me because if you don't, somebody else will. That's irrational. He just took on one verses 850 in the previous chapter. (laughs) Now he thinks that he's destined for nothing but failure. As we think about a case study in distress, we need to begin just by noting that it's not sinful to be discouraged or in distress, but it can be dangerous. And as I look at Elijah here in 1 Kings 19, he presents to us some dangers. By the way, there's another danger here. Dropping back down verse, uh, to verse 9 once again. He came to a cave. I'm told by people who know more about this stuff than I do that the Hebrew actually says he came to the cave, maybe specifying a specific place. In fact, perhaps even some scholars have postulated that this is the very cave where Moses saw the glory of God back in Exodus chapter 33. Wouldn't that be interesting? There's no doubt that there's a lot of historical significance to the lands on which Elijah walks. In this cave, by the way, Elijah is going to have a similar experience. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he, God, said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? God never asks questions for information. God always asks questions for contemplation. Mm -hmm. He's trying to get me to think. Adam, go back to Genesis 3. Where are you, Adam? God knew where Adam was. (laughs) The point is to try and get Adam to think. Why are you hiding from me? What are you doing? What have you done? What are you doing here, Elijah? God's trying to beckon us out of self-deception and into self-disclosure, as one writer put it. This is God's call for Elijah to reassess. And Elijah gets out the world's smallest violin, right? It's easy to poke fun, right? And it's good to lighten the mood. If I were in Elijah's shoes, I don't know. I hope I would have done something different, but I probably would have done the same thing. I've been very jealous. These people, they've apostatized. They're idolatrous. They martyr people like me. I'm the only one left. They want to take my life. Look at verse 11. And God said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. ESV has a footnote, a a thin silence. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Isn't that interesting that God would couch this magnificent event with the same question 
God's trying to get Elijah to think. What are you what are you doing? What's your purpose? Reconnect. You know, God doesn't always deliver us from problems in quote unquote big ways. I'm mindful of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. By the way, those were their Babylonian names. We don't ever call them by their Hebrew names. Imagine if they were here and they'd say, what do you want us to call you? I think they'd probably say, give us the names that honor our Hebrew heritage. You know, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Nebuchadnezzar says, maybe you didn't hear the first time. You know, I think he says this in this maniacal way. We're, we're going to do this again. By the way, guys, heat up the oven seven times hotter than it already is. Uh, pay no mind to the fact that the guards just died as they got a little closer to it. We're going to give you another opportunity. And those three young men said, we don't know whether God's going to deliver us from this or not. Well, see, what I love about that, I can relate to that. Because, hey, listen, the lion's den thing... Uh, I get a feeling God doesn't work like that anymore, right? God doesn't send the angels to, to close the mouths of the lions so that you know we can be okay. Here are these three guys, and they're not banking on God's deliverance. They're just putting all their trust and faith in God. Whatever happens, Nebuchadnezzar, you're going to know, whether we die or live, God is the one true God. For Elijah, these these things that pass before him, this strong wind that breaks in pieces rocks. I mean, that must be some wind, right? And then an earthquake. And then fire. God's demonstrating his great power. But God's trying to get a message through to Elijah. And he does it in the form of a question. What are you doing here? Where this is dangerous, though, is Elijah's response. Not just the first time, but the second time. Because after the second question and the magnificent display of God's power right before him, perhaps in the very mountain where Moses had experienced the glory of the Lord as well, Elijah in verse 14 rehearses the same speech word for word. I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, the people of Israel, forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Here's where this is dangerous. Discouragement can cause me not just to think irrationally in terms of wanting to quit, but also to think irrationally in terms of not being willing to listen to God anymore. You know those people that have gotten so low that they're not willing to listen? Sometimes I've been there. God's going to help him through, and we're going to shift gears and focus on that in just a moment. But let us make sure that our hearts do not become callous to the message of God's Word. That even in our distress and discouragement, we maintain a connection to God. And in fact, we rely on Him to pull us through it. So let's switch gears and focus on the positive as we answer the question, well, what can I do? What can I do when I'm distressed? What can I do when I'm low? Practically speaking, I think we see four things that can help us. Backing all the way up again to the earlier portions of the chapter, this time we go up to verse 5. Elijah's under this broom tree, and he's asked God to take his life, for I'm no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and there, behold, was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. By the way, remember, 
We're still in that period of famine, right? In terms of the context. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank. And he went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, synonym for Sinai, the mount of God. Number one, what can I do when I'm distressed? I like this point. Stop to rest and eat. Okay. I have noticed as a parent of young children that sometimes when they're cranky, they need food. Right? And they need rest. My kids say, I'm never tired. And sometimes I believe them based on the way that they have slept in the past. Same is true for us, right? We try and be spiritual people and we try and emphasize the spirit and yet we cannot isolate the spiritual from the physical. We are mind and body and spirit, at least so long as we dwell here. There's a reason, right? Why sometimes people were more open to Jesus and His message once their physical maladies had been remedied. Perhaps we see a pattern even for some of the medical missions and other things that go on today. Sometimes it's good to just stop, to have a little while to rest, and then to get something good to eat. I wish I could get some food that would last me 40 days and 40 nights. (laughs) Maybe sometimes I ought to go 40 days and 40 nights. (laughs) Number two, first, stop to rest and eat. Number two, we've got to focus on God. Spend time alone with God. That's not isolating. That's, that's not closing myself in to this room of mirrors where all I do is focus on the bad stuff around me. Instead, that's focusing on God. Spend alone time with God. Elijah forgot to think, if we want to call it this way, theologically. He's only reacting to the circumstances around him. He's not thinking about the promises that God has made to him. And even when God, on two occasions in the same conversation, it seems, beginning at verse 9, tries to get Elijah to reassess. And by the way, notice how gentle God is with Elijah through this. He just asks him a question. What are you doing here? Can I show you something powerful? Now, Elijah, how do you react to what it is that I've just shown you? And even later, as we'll see, he will continue to deal very gently with Elijah I'm grateful to know that God is gentle with us in our moments of weakness. I'm even more grateful from a New Testament standpoint to know that we have a high priest who knows what it's like to have times that are discouraging. That there are sometimes needs to come away and pray for a little while. That sometimes it's important to stop here and rest and eat. We see the Lord doing all those things from time to time. Number three, it's good to focus on others in our moments of discouragement. I guess Elijah had allowed pride to some degree to take root in his heart. He feels like he's the only one. And that if Elijah doesn't continue, he feels like he's at this this sort of false start, right? On the one side, he says, if you don't kill me, they will, God. But on the other side, in saying that, he also seems to reveal about himself that he believes that he's the only one who is capable of defending God in this moment. I'm the only one left, he says. There's nobody else but me. I suppose he felt that he was indispensable to what God was doing in Israel. But when I begin at verse 15... 
The Lord said to Elijah after Elijah plays his sad song the second time on repeat, Go return on your way. Some translations say, Go back the way you came. God's calling him back into service to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be the king over Syria. Syria, God rules over all the nations of the world. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be the king over Israel. Israel, reestablishing God's rule over the northern kingdom. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, and Abel-Maholah, you shall anoint to be the prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. And I will leave, New King James translated, I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. There was a remnant that had been kept by God's word which could not be silenced. And by the way, it's only then, there at the end of verse 18, that, that God addresses Elijah's alone statement. I'm the only one left. No, you're not. 7,000 others in Israel. It's interesting to me, though, that God says, okay, you need to get back to work. By the way, that's our fourth point. Recommit to the work of God. And as you do, you need to focus not just on yourself and your pity party, but on what other people are doing and have going on. You know, Elijah has to be content with being part of the plan and not the plan itself. He won't see the final fruit of his labors. But he's a piece of this. We may feel like we're doing really big things. or We may feel like we're doing a series of really small things in terms of kingdom work. But everything that's done with God and for God is significant and it matters. And we're moving the cause of Christ forward. We're trying to broaden the borders of the kingdom as we continue to spread that message of the gospel. And we're doing all of this in our time because we're responding and doing the best we can with the resources and the talents we have for such a time as this. When we're discouraged, we need to recommit to God's work. God emphasizes to Elijah that God's still busy. God hadn't given up. And Elijah ought to still be busy too. God's response is to give him three new tasks to accomplish. We see those delineated in 15 through 18. Recommit to the work of God. What do we do when we're discouraged? Maybe we need to re-energize physically. Maybe it's important that we focus on God and focus on others. Perhaps that's been lacking in what we've been doing. Maybe we need to recommit to God's work, double down, and move forward. We mentioned that God proved Himself in a very public way to be the one true God in chapter 18. But how would God prove Himself to be the one true God in chapter 19 personally to Elijah? As I read through 1 Kings 19... Specifically, beginning at verse 9, when the Lord actually interacts with Elijah, I notice several things of emphasis. Verse 9, He came to the cave and He lodged in it, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he, God, said to Elijah. Verse 11, And he, God, said 
And then after we have this series of of magnificent things, the wind, the earthquake, the fire, then there came a thin silence followed by verse 13, there came a voice. Verse 15, and the Lord said. How does God prove to be God in this text? He speaks. He speaks to Elijah. And while God never offers Elijah a resolution to his complaints rehearsed in verses 10 and 14, instead God redirected Elijah's focus through His Word. What are you doing here? And how does God establish Himself and prove Himself without a doubt in our hearts today? He speaks. Perhaps more appropriately stated, He has spoken. He gives us His message. And messages even like this one, things that we can learn from the Old Testament to show us how gentle He is, how kind and merciful He is, while at the same time encouraging Elijah along to redirect, to focus, to do right. And so maybe in our moments of distress, that's the question that we need to envision God asking to us. What am I doing here? What can God do through me? What is God doing for me even in this moment of spiritual low? How is God at work in what I am seeing around me even though it may be difficult to see because of how I feel? And what promises has God given me that will motivate me to take the next step and do the next right thing? Elijah in the Valley, case study of distress. It is my understanding that this is Robert and Emily's first trip to Colorado. This is true. And we have been blessed by their presence here. We thank Mm -hmm. you, Robert, for preaching such a powerful message. Uh, Thank you for your encouragement and all you do in the brotherhood. Uh, We're we're blessed to have you all here. Let's close with a prayer and then we'll have a couple quick announcements. And Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the strength that we can draw from stories like Elijah in the wilderness and uh, understanding that you are with us and that you can strengthen us if we just lean on you, Father. And we know that uh, from accounts like this and others in scriptures that there are highs and lows in everything that we do in life. But, Father, we know that whether we're in a high or a low, that you're standing right beside us, Mm -hmm. that you're willing to lead us and guide us. And if we would just turn to you and follow your lead, that you can lead us out of whatever valleys we find ourselves in. Father, strengthen us for the work. Strengthen us to send your gospel into a lost and dying world and help us to be strong in that. We're thankful for all those that have attended today. We pray that you just continue to watch over us as our day continues. It's through your son Jesus that we pray. Amen. Our next hour at 3 o'clock, Denny Petrillo will be in the auditorium. Uh, And so join us there in the auditorium. Thanks for coming. uh, And I hope you have a blessed day. Thanks, sir. Thank you, brother. I appreciate it very much. It's great, brother. Uh, you're kind to say that. Thank you. Yep, I got it. Oh.